Welcome to the 60th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. An important link in our food chain is in trouble. Scientists estimate that every third bite of food is directly or indirectly due to the services provided by bees and other pollinators. That's why there's so much concern over the recent reports that honeybees are experiencing colony collapse disorder, a condition that is decimating hives across the U.S. Theories abound as to the causes of CCD, and scientists are feverishly trying to solve the problem. Meanwhile, farmers are expressing the alarm that if they lose the pollination services provided by domesticated honeybees, food production will suffer a critical setback. The possible demise of honeybees has renewed interest in the pollination services provided by all those wild, undomesticated critters out there. Bumblebees, butterflies, moths, wasps, hummingbirds, and even some types of flies help spread pollen from plant to plant. Wild pollinators already provide an estimated $3 billion worth of services to U.S. agriculture annually, and that number is growing by the year, say researchers at the Xerxes Society. There's great potential for native pollinators to provide more services in places like the upper Midwest. There are nearly 500 species of native bees in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan combined. Unfortunately, many of the same problems that plague honeybees, disease, pesticides, and destruction of natural habitat, for example, are threatening domestic pollinators. Habitat destruction is a particular threat to pollinators in the Midwest, where over the past several decades, woodlands, prairies, pastures, and brushy fence lines have been replaced by monocultures of corn and soybeans. The good news is that there are some relatively simple ways to improve living conditions for pollinators, and this is a solution anybody with a few square yards of land can take part in. Entomologists say habitats that contain native plants that flower throughout the growing season are key to the future of pollinators. Establishing such pollinator-friendly habitat in odd corners of farms, gardens, lawns, even along roadsides, could do much to improve conditions for both wild pollinators and honeybees. The immense good that can come from even the smallest patches of habitat became clear to me on a recent fall day. That's when John Lumen, an entomologist for the Minnesota Department of Agriculture, showed off a few square yards of land near an MDA greenhouse, where lack of mowing and spraying had allowed a microhabitat to emerge. Some of the plants present included four kinds of legumes, including red clover and sweet clover, birdsfoot trefoil, primrose, and goldenrod, to name a few. Although it was early October and the temperature was barely 60 degrees, a variety of wild pollinators were at work in this small patch. Lumen provided a brief tour of this pollinator playground and talked about the importance of providing such habitat for all types of buzzing bugs from spring through autumn. I was wondering, John, if you could just... We're standing here on 7th Street, one of the busiest streets in St. Paul, and uh, just uh, below your greenhouse, your biocontrol greenhouse here. And just looking a few yards down hill here, we've got an area that's obviously been manicured and mowed and, and all that. And I think as, uh, as your co-worker Neil described it, that's kind of like concrete to pollinators because it's got grass, but there really just isn't much habitat there. But just a a little bit closer to the greenhouse here, we've got an area that's kind of been allowed to grow up. And it's really amazing, the activity, even here in early October, that we have with pollinators. I was wondering if you could describe what we've had growing up here and then maybe what what kind of habitat it's providing for pollinators. What, what, what do we see here, like this time of year as well as when we at the height of the pollination season? Well, instead of the usual grasses and a few dandelions that used to be here, suddenly 
have sprung up. Two of the prairie grasses that are growing both in our garden and down the hill from us, and three other weedy grasses, I guess you could call them. But there are at least four kinds of legumes because there's a red clover, a sweet clover, and then there's the weedy uh, bird's foot trefoil. And I can't remember what the fourth one is. There's um, one other legume that's growing here, but there's some primroses, and there's a one of the swamp milkweeds that's coming up. And in addition, of course, there's the uh, some of the dandelions and there are a couple other weeds. But most of these have flowers. Oh, and last but not least, the goldenrod. Almost all of these things uh, of the flowers provide pollen and nectar for any kinds of bees as well as flies and wasps and other things. But especially the bees are able to take advantage of the clovers, the goldenrod, the primrose when it was in bloom, the other legumes, and there's a couple, there's a weed-like daisy plant that's growing here, and that's an excellent uh, pollen and nectar plant. And, uh, this time of year, what are we seeing? What, what's most active right now as far as pollinators? Uh, right now, there's still a lot of one species of bumblebee, a lot of uh, paper wasps, and uh, a few flower flies, and still a few halictid or digger bees, which are related to sweat bees. Uh, those are the main ones still here that I've been able to see. When you when things really get going here, I think you said August is uh, really August till the end of September is that key time for a lot of pollinators when they're really trying to make a lot of uh, a good time before the winter shuts in. What, what, Kind of what will we see here at that prime time there in August? Well, in prime time in August, that's uh, prime time because uh, almost all of the bees and wasps and their and any that have colonies, everything matures in August and reaches its maximum development. So you have many, many species or all the species that are going to overwinter, and you have many more adults of any species because everything is going to be there in order to overwinter as an adult. So there would be easily two or three species of bumblebees in this little patch, um, at least probably a dozen species of other wild bees. And then there would be, in addition to the paper wasps, there would be uh, yellow jackets of at least two or three species and several species of uh, several families of flies. And, of course, on the goldenrod, there would be a lot of the soldier beetles. And there's some other beetles that you'll see, including lady beetles on um, plants getting nectar meals. Kind of the lesson I take away from this is really to really help pollinators. We don't need, uh, it'd be great to have great uh, acres and acres of habitat, but these little odd corners can really serve a real uh, important role here, just in a in a city lot here. Oh, that's for sure. Because the uh, little pockets like this are very dense with the plants that are growing, so the effect of the concentration of the plants is like having an area maybe four or five times greater. But insects are used to exploiting small patches because many insects are very specific in where they nest or where they feed or where they lay their eggs. So they're used to finding the little patches here and there. Uh, A city simply um, has more obstacles in the way, semaphores and uh, intersections and busy streets and buildings. But they're used to keying in on the greenery and the flowers and things that they can still see when they are flying. 
Well, and it, I think we were talking earlier, there's some community gardens in this area that are definitely benefiting from having this habitat here because the pollinators will go over there and help out some of those uh, vegetable plants, that type of thing. Yes, uh, yeah, it's definitely a mutual thing because uh, our insects can fuel them, so to speak, and also, obviously, we would get insects from there. And I think we both get our insects from just a couple blocks uh, north of here from the Swede Hollow area where there's lots of natural vegetation growing and, of course, along the, the bike trail that emanates from there. For practical information on how to help pollinators in the home and on farms, as well as in gardens and other areas, see the Xerxes Society website at www.xerces.org. That's www.xerces.org. Send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also call me at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member you'd like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.